Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The iFund, that's the international stock fund operated by the Thrift Savings Plan. Next year, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board will overhaul how the iFund goes about making investments. For what this means and why it's important, we turn to certified financial planner Art Stein of Arthur Stein Financial. Art, good to have you back. Good to be back, Tom. And you have studied this pretty closely, and there's a new index associated with it. Can we begin by just explaining what an index is in this context and how it works generally? Yeah, an index is uh, produced by an outside company, and they make decisions about what investments should be included in their index and in what proportions, you know, what percentage amounts should go into each stock. And they then license that index to various people. So the iFund's been using an index that is very common. It's called the MSCIEAFE index. And it's a very commonly used index. And it only invests in developed countries and only certain developed countries and only in very large companies. And we should point out that stands for Morgan Stanley Capital International, Europe, Australasia, and the Far East. (laughs) Exactly. And now they're in an index with an even more complicated name. Now they're going to an index. The change will take place in 2024 called once again, MSCI, same company produced it. ACWI, IMI, XUSA, XChina, XHongKong index. And so here's what that means. It's a much broader based index. It's going to invest in twice as many countries in stocks from twice as many countries. It's going to invest in seven times as many stocks, so much larger percentage of foreign stocks that are out there. And it's going to exclude stocks of companies from China and Hong Kong, because this became a political issue. Right. A lot of Congress people did not want TSP investing in China, and that includes now Hong Kong. So it's going from 21 countries in which stocks exist that this index can invest in to 44. So that is a major expansion. Major expansion. And all the extra countries, well, they added Canada finally. I don't know why they ever excluded Canada. But then they added 23 what they call emerging market countries. This is like countries in Latin America and Thailand and various other places. So much more broader based. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. What struck me is that the rate of return based upon the figures provided by the FRTIB, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, not a big difference in performance. And of course, performance has been a big complaint with the iFund for a long time. So, you know, I took the figures and tried to summarize them, did summarize them in a couple of ways. One, the average annual rate of return over the last 20 years, according to the FRTIB figures, would have been 9.3% for the new index compared to 8.4% for the old index. And to give it perspective, I then did an example. Again, it's in my blog. Suppose you had 100,000 in each of the indexes 20 years ago, and what would they be today? And with the new index, 
it would be worth 437,000 with the current index would be 394,000. So, you know, that's an advantage, but it's only a 13% difference over a 20-year period. So really not a big difference in the performance. So essentially, they're getting a tweak here. And just let me ask you one technical question, and this is my own ignorance about this. If you subscribe to that index, the new one that is they're about to use, does that index prescribe the percentage of each of the 5,621 stocks in that index? And if that's the case, then every fund that subscribes to that index would have identical performance, or how does that work? Yes, every fund that invests in that index would have identical performance because part of the index is not only specifying which stocks, but which percentage in in each stock. So the same thing is true of the current index, the EAFE index. Its performance is going to be identical with the performance of any other mutual fund or exchange-traded fund that uses the same index. There might be small differences because of expenses, but basically they're going to have the same performance. And of course, the C fund and the S fund and the F fund are all index funds too. And the same thing is true. Those funds use indexes that are readily available in funds outside the TSP, and the performance is basically the same. Does that mean then the skill of the managers, in this case, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, is in picking the index, not in picking the mix of stocks that the fund represents? Exactly. That's a perfect way to put it. They get to pick the index. Now, it happens that they picked an index six years ago, and they were ready to institute it in, I think, 2020. It was going to go into effect. And that's when members of Congress said, wait a second, this includes China. We don't want that. Now, you know, I'm not in favor of political interference, but it happened to be like, you know, sometimes it's more important to be lucky than good. It was good that they did that because stocks in China have not done well over some period of time. What I think happened is then they turned to MSCI, the company that creates these indexes. So we want basically the same index only without China and Hong Kong. So they produce this index, as far as I can tell, it is not available outside the TSP at this point. I would not be at all surprised if that changed because, you know, there are other people who, you know, don't want to get involved with China and Hong Kong for a variety of reasons. Well, if you look what's been going on with the Ant Group, you know, and some of the big public trials going on right now of Chinese, I guess their equivalent of oligarchs, you know, anything can happen. China is volatile and things bubble up and then they collapse totally, often because you fall out of favor with the party. Well, you have that problem and just the fact that the economy in general is not doing well and their stock market is not doing well. Part of it is is political interference and part of it is economic competition with the United States and we've acted in ways that has hurt Chinese stocks, which I suppose is one of the goals. But excluding politics, it is what it is. I think there's no reason to worry about the new index. I think it's fine. You know, the TSP has chosen to get an index from, you know, one of the major index providers. It shouldn't be a problem to manage. And I don't think people should worry about not being able to invest in Chinese stocks. Yeah, well, I mean, if you buy a Volvo, for example, a great Swedish car, it's actually the parent company is Chinese. And there's a lot of major brands in the United States that are, you trace it back, there's Chinese ultimate ownership. Very complicated. Including Lenovo, you know, which makes computers that lots of people like and buy. 
Yeah, so it's pretty hard to escape China in daily life, pretty much everything from what you wear, drive, eat, and consume. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, there's a connection to China. And just looking ahead to 2024 generally, the stocks in the United States, the Dow Jones Industrial Index is you know at record highs. I don't think anyone would have predicted that six or nine months ago. What's your general feeling on how people, again, not investment advice, but how should they think about what they do in the coming year with respect well, to the TSP? Well, first of all, let's say that this year, you know, through the end of last month, stocks have done great. The C fund's up 21%, S fund 13%, the I fund's up 12%. It's been a great year for stocks. You know, the bond fund, the F fund is up a little bit, which is better than it has been doing. And the G fund's been up 3.8% this year because interest rates got so high. So it's been a great year. And it certainly rewarded people who stayed invested in 2022, which was a terrible year for stocks and bonds. And as a result, just a really bad year for investors because there aren't many years where you have double digit declines in both stocks and bonds. But we saw that last year. So people didn't bail out, really did themselves a favor. Uh, as far as next year, I would never forecast. It does appear that the Fed is not going to raise interest rates anymore. In fact, they've indicated that they're going to lower interest rates a little bit during the year. That should be very positive for bonds and stocks. But we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, and just look at 2020 started out as a very good year for about six weeks. And then we got hit with COVID or there could be a war. There could be a natural disaster. You know, who knows what is going to happen. But what I look at is long term stocks outperform bonds and bank accounts by significant amounts. And so for long-term investors, I mean, I think that, you know, we say past performance, no guarantee of future performance, but there's a pretty strong record for, you know, why people invest in stocks. And you speak of, you know, I know that you uh, have reported a lot on TSP millionaires. And when you look at what they're invested in, it's mainly the C and the S funds. You know, and they stuck with it. People who mainly invested in the F and G funds, they didn't become TSP millionaires. Right. Or else they did if they worked for 50 years <laughs> long yeah. after they felt If you put retirement. in a million, you know, 900,000, you might have a million or whatever the figure would be. But they didn't become TSP millionaires. It's the people. I mean, I just heard from somebody last week and talking to them about doing a retirement plan. And, you know, they mainly invested in the G fund. And they, after many, many decades, have about 500,000. It just doesn't do that well. And I guess, too, be careful of the shiny object. I'm just reading a story in the Wall Street Journal about the electric car startups. Okay, so Tesla has been an interesting investment, maybe, that looks like that company will last. But three electric car startups, and they all had billions in market capitalization, briefly. Electric Mile Last Solutions, Proterra, Lordstown Motors have all filed for bankruptcy. And there's a couple of others which are scraping by to get enough cash to be able to build the cars people ordered. So sometimes shiny things that are huge in potential also you would want to avoid as too risky on the upside. Well, that's just an example of the difficulty of picking out individual stocks because somebody is going to do really well with electric cars. And Tesla's done well, but not well enough 
I think, to justify their stock price at the moment. But you don't know. And frequently, all these small companies who pile into something like electric vehicles, which becomes very popular suddenly, lots of them are going to fail. I mean, that's just the nature of investing. You know, Elon Musk has done a tremendous job of building up the company. Now the question is, is he going to do a tremendous job of maintaining whatever performance they have. And, you know, that's an issue. Well, yeah, like you say, I think the important thing is stick to the indexes. Don't try to pick them yourself. Art Stein is a certified financial planner in Bethesda, Maryland, proprietor of Arthur Stein Financial. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.